are, if you are shedding the illusions of your own self-righteousness and self-sufficiency because of what God has done for you through Jesus and by his grace and the power of his spirit, you are in fact saints of God, being transformed by God into the likeness of his son. So happy spring morning, saints at Redemption Hill. Um, A couple of uh, quick announcements as we get started before we jump into Ecclesiastes again. Uh, For all of you who have been going along with us in our our Lent study, a springtime of joy, a springtime of faith, uh, you've been wrestling through different passages of Scripture, uh, struggling with the things that have captured your heart, the desires and and the idols and the mistresses of your heart that have robbed your affection and your joy for Jesus. And you've been wrestling with the impact of that on your life as you've been going through things and have been challenged through the process to strip some of those things away for a period of time and to examine what rises in your heart, the thoughts, the disappointments, the struggles, uh, the misplaced joy. And, and so hopefully you've been enjoying that. Hopefully it's been profitable for you, for those who have joined us in it. And we're kind of going to carry that personal process of Lent reflection into our gatherings on Sunday morning. Uh, this morning we kind of started the process as, as we figured, what, what is it on Sunday morning when we gather that we tend to build a lot of dependency upon? We tend to base a lot of our emotion, a lot of our expectation, a lot of our connection with what God is doing here on, and and how can we strip it away to try to get back to the reality that God has brought us here by his grace, and he's called us to surrender to his word and to allow his spirit to transform us, and we kind of figured that one of the things that we tend to lean on and have a, a really unhealthy dependence upon is the way we do the music that we do. I mean, if there's one thing that we get to come in here and we all have opinions on, it's how we do the music. And for some, we get so dependent upon it that if it's different than the way we're used to, we, we seem to feel like we can't actually connect or worship. We hear that all the time, and you, you may struggle with that. So this week, we pared it back a little bit. We took away some of the sound and some of the things we typically do. It was much more simple, much more spartan as the adjective that we've received over the last year and a half has become commonplace. Next week, we're going to strip it back even more. We're going to take it back even more, maybe even to some acapella singing, and here's why. Because our capacity to sing before God is an issue of our heart. It's a gospel issue. It's not an essential point of our gathering together. If you struggle to sing before God, ultimately, it's a gospel issue. It's a heart issue. And when we take away a lot of the trappings that we're so comfortable with and we get so dependent upon, we really wrestle with why we do what we do. And if you're struggling to sing, it may be because what we're singing about really fails to move you. Maybe the good news of the the glorious nature of God and his grace in the gospel is failing to move your heart and singing about it would just not be honest. You know what? That's okay. But it's good for you to know that. It's good so that we can deal with that. For some of you, it's more of a fear issue. It's a fear of people. It's a fear of the person next to you and what they might think about you. And you know what? That's a gospel issue too. The only fear, and we'll talk about it later this morning, that's to consume us and set the agenda for how we live is the fear of God. Not the fear of men not the fear of opinion. And so we're going to strip things back, and we're just going to see. We just want to sing. And we just want to let the voices of God's people rise in in praise to him. So we're going to take it back a little bit further next week. So when you come in and and we get going and there's just voices and you wonder what's going on, it's intentional. It's our last week of, of Lent, and it's our last chance as a body to pull away some of that dependency and just deal with what's going on in our heart. And then the following week is, is what? Easter, Resurrection Sunday. The moment that we celebrate in in all of its grandeur, what we celebrate every single week when we gather together, the nation, the culture begins to gather and celebrate the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. And if you're familiar with it at all or not, if you have any kind of background in the church, you know that Easter Sunday is one of those Sundays that everybody just feels like something should be going on. You know, it's one of those Sundays that even people who don't grace the doors of a church gathering feel like, you know, maybe I should... Maybe I should go to church on Sunday morning. It's Easter. I'm not really sure. And you know that's the case for people that you know. You know it was true for your life at some point. It may be true for you now. Somebody drug you in here this morning. But here's what I, wa- here's what I want you to do, and here's how I want us to redeem that angst and that conscience that God has given people that plagues them throughout the year that comes to fruition on Easter. I want you to take that bulletin that you've got in the space that's in the backside, the bottom, where you can write down requests for prayer or things that you can drop off for us. I want you to take that, and I want you to think of one, two, three people in your life who you know need to understand and be transformed by the grace of Christ, the gospel. I want you to think about them. And I'm not going to give you a track for you to drop off at their door or a Bible for you to give them or a book for you to give them. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray for them. I want you to pray that in the next two weeks, God would do something miraculous in their heart. 
That that conscience, that guilt, that struggle that plagues them as Easter comes around and that sense of needing to, to, to connect to something they're not sure of and how it fits to this holiday, I pray that it boils up into something that begins to drive them to want to know. And here's the thing, I want you to pray and then I want you, I want you to actually step out and actually invite them to come with you. I want you to pray for people very specifically who you know need to understand and be changed by the grace of Jesus. And then I want you to actually believe God and trust God enough that you can invite them and that he's at work in their heart and that you bring them on Easter Sunday morning. Because on Easter Sunday morning, we're going to plug things back in. But more enjoyable than that, we're going to celebrate what God has done in people's lives here through baptism. We're actually going to do it here. Instead of going out to the river like we have in the past, we're going to figure out a way to dunk people in this building without damaging this building and ultimately getting kicked out of it at some point. So I want you to bring, bring people. I want you to pray for them first, that God would do a work in their heart and then trust that he would. And bring people that they might see a, a tangible demonstration of the grace of God through the gospel, transforming people's lives, hearing the stories of those who have been affected by it, and then hearing the message of the gospel proclaimed from scripture that changed you, that changed me, and that changes us every single day. So is that, that good? Strip down next week. Acapella, tune your voice, drink some tea, don't get too scratchy. Easter, pray. Pray for the people in your life that you know need the grace of God. And then step out in faith and actually invite them to be here. We'll figure out a place for them to sit. We've only got like 20 more chairs in here right now, but we'll figure out a way to get more chairs in here for them to sit. Bring them, let them see a demonstration of God's grace through God's people and hear God's word proclaimed. And just pray that God will be gracious enough in their life to change them the way he's changed you. Sound good? All right, back to Ecclesiastes. We are in the midst of our, our study of the book of Ecclesiastes, a, a long-forgotten, often-neglected, very underpreached book of the Bible. Um, and one of the things that I have failed to tell you so far as we've begun our study in Ecclesiastes is just how it fits, not into the larger story of Scripture, because hopefully we try to hit that a little bit every single week, but how it fits into the different types of writings in Scripture. I don't know if you know this or not, but the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes falls into the genre of Bible literature that's called the wisdom literature. And I don't know if it's ever struck you or not that, it was, that God would decide to actually dedicate a particular aspect of his word to the idea of wisdom. That of all the things and all the different genres, he actually picked out a particular genre and he inspired the living out and the writing of his word through different men and, and families in ancient history that would begin to be gathered together and would comprise this, uh, this idea of literature called wisdom. And I, I've wrestled with why, if all of Scripture is God's word and all of it is profitable for rep reproof and correction and, and encouragement and transformation, why is there a particular genre called wisdom, if it's all, in some sense, wisdom from God? And I think I've come to the reality as I have read through the wisdom literature and stumbled across a couple of things that God said along the way, is that he had to actually get a specific genre of literature called wisdom because people, people, you and I, especially in our lives under the sun, the way we've been talking about it, are stupid. Really, we're stupid. And if you think that's harsh, let me just show you one of the things I stumbled across. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1, lest you think I'm being harsh or provocative by saying you're stupid. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof, this is from the word of God, inspired by the spirit of God, is stupid. The reason that God has had to inspire the wisdom of his scripture, and in particular the wisdom of the, lit of the wisdom literature in the Bible, is because you and I, under the sun, left to ourselves, without his direction, without his counsel, without his guidance, without his spirit, ultimately, are stupid. And so if we are going to be a people, as we've talked in the last few weeks of the book of Ecclesiastes, are going to, are going to be about putting away the illusions putting aside the illusions that so easily capture our lives, that draw us away from the reality of who God is for us in Christ, how that changes the way that we live, if we're going to shed the illusions that we've talked about on where to find purpose and satisfaction and meaning, then we're going to have to be a people who are after wisdom. We're going to have to be a people who are after the wisdom of God. You see, wisdom to ancient Israel was so important that the children of ancient Israel would read and study and learn the wisdom literature from childhood on. And it was important for them to understand and learn this because the wisdom literature in the scriptures is given to us by God to help us live wisely and skillfully. The wisdom literature is given to us by God, inspired by God's spirit, that we might live the life that he's given us in this earth under him, under heaven, we'll see in a few minutes, in a way that's skillful, 
in a way that's wise, in a way that responds appropriately to the circumstances that we find ourselves in. So they began to train children from early on in this wisdom literature that their children would understand who God was and how because of who he was to them as his covenant people, they could respond to the world they found themselves in, a world often shattered and confusing and and frustrating. But they could respond to it in a way that honored God and was wise was appropriate and was skillful. And so my hope as we've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes and as we continue to go through the book of Ecclesiastes this spring is that God would work his word. He would work his wisdom into our hearts, into our souls, into our minds, into our lives, that it would begin to shape the way that we would respond to the circumstances that we find ourselves in that we would be a people who would offer an absolutely radically different way of approaching this world, that we would be a people who would offer a wisdom that stands in absolutely clear contrast to the, the illusions and the illusions of wisdom and insight and purpose that are offered by a world under, under the sun, a world apart from the wisdom that comes from God. So as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes, especially this morning and the weeks to come, here's what's important for us to remember. In light of the fact that we talked about last week, that you will die. That death is not just inevitable, but your your death is inevitable. That death is personal. And one day, you will stand before God. Here's what we're going to get after this morning. Here's what Ecclesiastes is getting after. And here's what the wisdom literature is getting after. You need to live with skill. You need to live with wisdom. In light of the fact that you are going to die and one day stand before God, you need to live with wisdom. And the thing that Ecclesiastes is going to get after this morning, the the aspect of wisdom that Solomon is going to begin to show us and deal with this morning is this. We must be able to determine wisely and skillfully the season of life that we find ourselves in. We need to have our eyes open to our life and to the world around us and be able to accurately determine the season of life that God has put us in, that we find ourselves in, so that we can respond to it in a way that is wise, that is appropriate, and that ultimately finds the grace and joy and satisfaction and meaning in it that can only come from God, that we might find Him satisfying and reflect His glory to a world that is desperately searching in the midst of a land of illusions, that we could display to them where true satisfaction and meaning is found. That's what Solomon's going to get for this morning. So to be able to do that in the time that we've got, let me pray for us. And then we're going to open up Ecclesiastes and we're going to get going. Father, thank you again for this privilege, this privilege to be here with your people. Um, Lord, help us in the midst of our struggle and our frustration, in the midst of feeling like we're not really saints very often. Help us to surrender our souls, surrender our wills, surrender our minds, surrender our hearts and our passions and desires to your word. Help us be a people who are surrendering ourselves to your word. And that in that process, we can be a people whose hearts treasure the riches of your grace, the riches of your glory, the riches of your gospel. That we would live lives that reflected a satisfaction in who you are for us. This morning, by your spirit, God, you can do that in our hearts. You can take, you can take the next step in our souls. Help us this morning. Surrender ourselves. And Lord, by your grace, for your glory, transform us by your word into the image of your son. Lord, and as we do this, day in and day out, week in and week out. As our souls are cultivated to reflect the character of your son, may it be that your name be made known. May it be for your glory. May it not be for our own glory, but may you get the glory for that in the city through this people. We ask these things in the name of your precious son, Jesus, whose life, death, and resurrection has made that possible. Amen. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to go in the familiar pattern that we've been in for the last few weeks. I'm going to read, I'm going to talk, I'm going to read, I'm going to talk, I'm going to read, I'm going to talk. And we're going to trust God by his grace to help me make some sense out of what we're reading. uh, That it will do something in our hearts and in our lives. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1. Here it goes. It's going to be a poem. You loved poetry in school, didn't you? It's going to be a poem. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. In verse 1, we get two really big things that you've got to notice if we're going to make sense of what's going on 
in the next 9, 10, 11, 12 verses. First thing you've got to see is if you've been with us as we've been going through this, the context for Solomon's understanding is about to change. You know, the first two chapters, Solomon has been talking about exploring the meaning of life, pursuing the purpose of life, pursuing satisfaction in life under the sun. What could be known through your own wisdom, your own understanding, your own strength, your own skill in this life that might bring real purpose and satisfaction to you without the insight from God, without dependence upon God, without revelation from God, without God's involvement in anything at all to your best understanding, is there anything out there in life through which you can derive purpose and satisfaction and meaning? And so far, he said, under the sun, left to myself, absolutely not. Pleasure, momentary and fleeting. Joy in it, absolutely. Lasting meaning and purpose, no way. Riches, possessions, no. Wisdom, even trying to understand as much as I could to get an edge on this idea that life is ultimately going to end and the world is frustrating. Even that wisdom ultimately couldn't bring me what it was I was looking for. It was vanity. It was striving after the wind. It was like the two-year-old trying to chase the bubbles in the wind, grabbing all of them, only to have them pop when he would get them. All of it has been frustrating, but here's what Solomon says now. Here's what I've seen. Under heaven. Under heaven. Not right now under the sun, left to myself, but under heaven. To the Israelite, what was in heaven? Who was in heaven? Who was reigning in heaven? Who was residing in heaven, watching over, guiding, counseling, correcting, and caring for his people? God, the creator of all that is. The the God who had come, who had given himself to his people, who had made a covenant with his people, who had promised upon his own character and person to be for his people their God and for them to be his people, for him to redeem what sin had so horribly torn apart. God is the one who resides in heaven. And here's what Solomon says. I'm about to see something no longer left to myself, no longer left to my own wisdom, no longer left to my own insight, but under heaven, under heaven, with the revelation of God. Here's what I've seen. Big point. He's going to unpack it in a lot of ways this morning. For everything, for everything, there's a time and there's a season. In God's economy, in God's economy of time, there is a season and a particular time for everything that you will go through, for everything that you are going through. And wisdom, as Ecclesiastes finds its place in the wisdom literature, wisdom would dictate that you live with your eyes open to discern accurately the times and the seasons that you find yourself in so that you can respond to them skillfully appropriately and to God's glory. You need to discern the seasons of life that you are in because for everything, for everything, there's a time. There's a time and a season for every experience that you will go through. Nothing under heaven is outside of God's dominion. And there's a time that you're gonna experience the full range of life in this earth. Now, we have a tendency to respond to that reality in two particular ways that I want to mention before we go through this text a little bit. When we, when we begin to face the different seasons that we go through in life, the different struggles that we'll unpack, and Solomon unpacks in a minute, there are two ways we tend to respond. One is with regret. This is a particular struggle that I would wrestle with. I still wrestle with, but not to the way I used to. For some of us, we live constantly looking in the rearview mirror. Our life is shaped not so much by where we are, what we're going through, and who God is for us, but what we could have done, what we should have done, what could have only been if something would have been different. This is, I don't know if you've seen the movie, I couldn't stand the movie, but I think I'm the only one who ever saw it, didn't like it. But this is Uncle Rico. Remember Napoleon Dynamite? Have you seen Napoleon Dynamite? This is Uncle Rico. Remember the guy, he'd set up his video camera in the yard, he'd mid-40s, he'd drop back with his old high school uniform on and try to make the pass and talk about if he had only... And if he'd only hit that one pass, it would have all been different. They would have won the big game. He would have been the big star. He would have had the big wife. He would have gotten the big college career. He would have gotten the big job. He would have made something of himself, but, but he didn't. And here he is in the middle of his life, still throwing a football from a video camera, trying to prove to himself who he could have been. Some of us look at the seasons we find ourselves in in life, and instead of living in the midst of them, as we'll talk about in a minute, we live with this world of regret. What could have been? What should have been, what, what ought to have been. I think by the time I graduated from college, I'd been to 18 schools, kindergarten forward. 
moved a pretty fair amount of time, but, and then a lot of times as I was older, I transferred because of sports. In that, then I went on to play sports, and there's nothing more draining to a man's ego and, and confidence than the missed opportunities in sports. And I think by the time I had graduated from college and was going through life, I spent probably a good five to seven years of my life as a young adult wondering what could have been as I was no longer playing anymore and, and wondered if I had just hit that one, if we had just gotten this. You know, if I hadn't taken that turn there and hit that person and had that injury, if I, if I hadn't transferred this school to that place, and I went a good five to seven years of my life defining my life by what could have been and what should have been and what ought to have been, ultimately missing the very season and place that God had put me in at that moment and the grace and the joy that he had offered to me by living under his reign and under his rule in the midst of it. And a lot of us, a lot of us struggle with this. We respond to life not by understanding where we are, but by regretting what could have been and where we should have been. And another way that people tend to respond outside of finding satisfaction and joy in where they are is they don't necessarily regret what they could have done or what they could have been, but they live in this unbelievable anxiety and anxiousness about what's coming down the road. I mean, life is about getting everything in order to get to this place that you've defined for yourself that you need to be. It doesn't matter what's going on around you right here and right now and the people around you. You've got to get things straight so that when you get to this place, it's exactly the way you want it to be. And you live with this anxiety and this pressure about the future, about what you need to make happen and what needs to be here for you to be happy and what you need to be successful and what you need to be the person you want to be. And you're not backwards looking, you're, you're obsessed with looking forward and all along both of you, the regretful person and the anxious future person, miss the here and now. We miss the here and now. We miss the season of life that God under heaven has put us in. And as we'll see in a minute, with all the joys, with all the struggles and sorrows, because he is reigning and ruling, and as we'll see, nothing is apart from him. There is the capacity for joy. There is the capacity for grace. There is the capacity for satisfaction and fulfillment right here in the season that you find yourself in. The struggle is we never seem to find ourselves in this place. We're always looking here and always obsessed about going there, and Solomon is going to call us to discern the season that we're in so that we can find the grace and the satisfaction and the joy that comes from God in it. You see, seasons are going to change, and this is going to get really clear as we read Ecclesiastes 3. The seasons are going to change, and you've got to be willing to change with them. You've got to be willing to acknowledge where you are, what's changed, and what needs to change about how you're living in the midst of this. See, one of the things that we do, and I haven't seen it so much in my life, but I've seen it with so many people as we've talked about their life and their struggle, is they tend to determine at one point where they are in life and the season that they're in. And they tend to come to terms with it, and they seek to understand who God is in it. But you know what? They never actually notice the seasons change. They get themselves locked into who they are and how they live in the midst of this time. And the season is going to change, but they don't change with it. And so they're trying to plow forward in the midst of a change in life and a change in season and a change in circumstance, never changing who they are and how they live. You know, my son and I are in very different seasons of life. I was at one time in his place, four and a half years old, almost five. I'm not that age anymore. What he can do, I can no longer do. But just yesterday, we were, or day before yesterday, we were out in the back playing with a bunch of neighbors and a bunch of other kids. He had to go to the bathroom. He just walked right over to the nearest large bush, pulled his pants down, went to the bathroom. While he was going to the bathroom, he turned around and talked to everybody, <laughs> making sure he didn't miss anything. And he, you know what? Everybody did just what you did. They laughed. He's four and a half years old. He didn't think anything about what he's doing. He didn't want to miss life and go upstairs to the bathroom. He stayed outside and went to the bush. I can't do that. <laughs> I, I cannot get, get so caught up in what I'm doing outside with you guys playing sports that I can just walk over to the bush and talk to you and pull my pants down and go to the bathroom. That, it's no longer appropriate for me. You know, we're in different seasons as, as parents. And this is one of the things that, with a lot of us who are in here with younger families, and, and even as our kids get older, as I've talked with people whose kids are older, we struggle with the same thing. We have to adjust our lives to the change in season that we are with our kids. The way that we can live, the way that we can operate, the way that we can spend our time, and the way that we can focus our attention changes with our kids. It changes with their age, it changes with their number. There are some points in life when you have to acknowledge where God has you and put away some of the things that you want so bad for yourself because God has given you these kids. 
He's given you these unbelievable blessings that you've got to pour yourself into. Some of the time you want for yourself on the computer, you've got to put away. Because he's given you these kids and you get one shot with them. One shot. And you've got to determine where you are in the season of life with your family that you've got to uh, respond to with wisdom accordingly. You know, for a lot of you in here, college is a season. It's a season of life and there's grace and there's joy to be found in it. Are you open? Are your eyes open looking for the grace, the joy, the satisfaction to be found that God has given you in this particular season in life? We've, we've got to acknowledge them and then we've got to be willing to change with them. Every season has grace to be had. Every season has purpose to be found. Every season has satisfaction to be gained and to be held onto and experienced and enjoyed from the hand of God. But are our eyes open to it? Are you looking for it? Are you a hunter? A hunter of the grace that God has given you in your life right now? Ecclesiastes 3. Let's let Solomon just define some of these seasons. And you know what? I'm going to be straight up honest with you in this. We're going to read through this, this poem, and I'm going to talk through some of these things. But just be clear, there are some things that he says in this poem that even the smartest of people don't know what he's talking about. I mean, this was a poem written thousands of years ago that were translated into our language, and he's using poetic expressions of his time. There are some things in here we can speculate about what he meant, but we honestly don't know. I can get really creative for you and come up with something that sounds really nice, but there's a few of these that we just don't know. It was a poem, for goodness sake. So we're going to talk, we're going to read, we're going to see if we can make sense out of some of these seasons. Here's what he says in verse 2. He's going to put the big umbrella over the whole thing. You know, there's a time to be born, and there's a time to die. From the cradle to the grave, your life is under heaven. Your life is under the reign and the rule of God. From the cradle to the grave, a day to be born and a day to die, and you can't change either. You didn't pick either, and you can't change when they occur. But for everybody, there's a day that we are born, and for everybody, Hebrews 9 says, there's a day appointed for us to take our last breath, for there not to be another breath behind the one we just took, which makes that last one one of the most meaningful ones we'll ever take. But there's a time and there's a season appointed by the hand of God for everyone to be born and everyone to die. There's a time to plant, and there's a time to pluck up what's planted. See, there's a time to begin things, and there's a time to end things. And this is really hard for people who don't like change. But there's times to put your hands to new initiatives. In churches, there are times to put your hands to new ministries and new efforts. And there's times to look at things in your life, and you go, what? Done. That thing has run its course. That thing has borne the fruit that it was going to bear. It's time to pull that thing up from the ground. And for people who don't like change, this is hard. This is hard. But there are seasons in life when you have to evaluate what you're doing and what you're putting your hand to and recognize, is this a time that God is calling me to put my hand to seeing this thing start, to seeing this thing begin, to beginning and planting something here, or is this a time to look around at my life and see what needs to be yanked up and what needs to be uprooted, what things are no longer bearing fruit, and I need to be willing to get rid of them and to let them go. Verse 3, there's a time to kill and there's a time to heal. Even the best commentators will say, He's talking here about physical health. There's a reference here and a metaphor here. We miss a little bit in translation. It's talking about physical health. There's a time in your life when your body's going to hurt because of the realities of sin shattering the beautiful creation that God had created in the beginning. There is suffering and there is pain, and your physical body will ultimately deteriorate no matter how hard you fight against it. We talked about it just a few weeks ago in Solomon's Pursuit of Wisdom. No matter how smart we get, no matter all the treatments we come up with, no matter all the advances and miracles that we figure out, there will never be a pill that will offset the reality of death forever. Your body will fall apart. And there will be a season in your life that your body is going to bring you to tears, that you are going to struggle. There's a season for life when you're doing great, when you're really healthy, when that healing has come and the body is getting stronger. But there are seasons. There's a time for all of it. And you've got to acknowledge where you are. And what we'll see in a minute, we'll talk about here with another one of, his, of one of his metaphors, is that when you recognize you're in one of those seasons that we really don't want to deal with, I mean, there's one of these seasons and all of this we'll all take. I'll take a little bit of healing, but I don't really want very much killing. I'll take a little laughing, but I don't really want much mourning. I don't really want to deal with weeping, but I'll take the laughing. What we'll see is when we come to the season in life that we would prefer to set aside and to leave behind, 
what we've got to acknowledge is that we understand when these are under the hand of God and under heaven and the grace of God is to be found in the midst of where we are, we don't have to do our best effort to run around it. We don't have to figure out how to make an end run around the hurt, to make an end run around the tears, to make an end run around the pain, to make an end run around the body just slowly falling apart, but we can go straight through it, like David said, through the valley of the shadow of death, not around it, because we have a God who is in control because we have a God who has given us grace and joy and satisfaction to be found in the midst of every time and every season under heaven. So there's a time for healing and a time for your body to just fall apart, a time to break down and a time to build up. He just uses a construction metaphor to, to talk about what he's already hit. Verse four, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Sometimes, sometimes not even because your body is failing you, Sometimes because the world in the midst of sin hurts you and fails you, you will cry. You will weep. There will be times in your life and seasons of your life that are appropriate for you to weep. I remember when some of you have gone through things much more dramatic, but I remember most touching on my, on my nerves is when our son died. I mean, there was a time in our life when we found out that he, was, he had very little hope of making it. And then on the backside of actually passing away, that there was a season of our life where it was absolutely appropriate for us to weep. Mourning and weeping was right. Death is an enemy to God's good plans. And death ultimately, through the grace of God, has been conquered, but that conquering won't be fully realized until Jesus himself comes back and sets all things in place, and death will ultimately be no more. But right here, right now, in the space between those two things, there's a season for weeping. There's a season for mourning, but here's what he says, you're not supposed to stay there. You don't stay there. And this is where so many of us find ourselves, no matter what it is that brings the weeping and the, and the crying into our lives, we tend to stay there and we fail to see, even in those moments, the grace of God and the joy of God and the satisfaction of God that's to be found in the midst of our tears and all of that, God had also given us an unbelievable source of joy and laughter, not even in himself, but in our other kids. In our other kids. And he didn't mean for us to live our lives in the midst of this season of mourning and weeping. We were to understand the realities of that time, but who he was for us, that we wouldn't try to get around it and put an end to it, but that we could go through it, that we could appropriately experience the season of life that he had put us in, but because of who he was and what he has done for us, he had promised something different to our hearts, and he had promised to be our God, that we could take refuge and shelter in him, and that ultimately, we'll see in a minute, like Solomon says, everything will, will be made beautiful in its time. And because of that, the mourning and the weeping is not the place where to stay, but there's a season for it. There's a time for it. And there's a time for great joy and laughter. And we've got to be wise in discerning the season that we're in and the season that he's taking us to. The other thing in this verse that I thought was really interesting as I studied it is that in the light of the entire canon of Scripture, all of Scripture, mourning is often used, the word he uses there, is often used in conjunction with repentance. And I thought it was really interesting because I thought maybe this is what he was actually after. There's a time in your life when you will mourn the pervasive nature of sin in your heart. We talk about it all the time. I, I tell you, I, I think I may have told you before, one of the best things I've ever heard about this church um, when I was talking with somebody about why they come and, and why they've stuck around in the midst of a church plant like this that's always in flux and always doing something strange is they said they ultimately came to a place where they realized that they were a sinner. Every single day, that I, I am a sinner. And you come in every single week and tell me that I'm a sinner. But it, the more I realize that I'm a sinner, the bigger the grace of God has become in my life. And he's become a much bigger savior. I love that. There is a season in our life when we're going to become aware and actually probably mourn to some degree the pervasive nature of sin in our hearts. We're going to have to see just how easily we fall for the illusions in this world that try to rob us from the satisfaction to be found in Jesus. And when we come to that place in the moments that God gives us that insight by his grace, it hurts. But on the backside of that mourning and that reality of our sin is the joy and the laughter and the dancing that comes because of his grace. The bigger our sin gets, the bigger his grace gets that covers it all. The bigger his grace gets, the freer we are to see the depth and pervasiveness of our own sin. And the more that we see the depth and pervasiveness of our own sin, the bigger, again, his grace and the gospel through Jesus gets. And life becomes this really beautiful dance and rhythm of seeing who we are outside of him, but seeing who we are because of Jesus and who he is for us. And the day that we come, that we'll stand before him and be made like him and be with him for all of eternity. 
I think maybe Solomon was getting after this repentance idea in this verse. I'm not really sure, but there's a time to mourn and there's a time to dance. And when you see grace, when you see the gospel, when you taste it in your life over and over again, it brings great joy. And I have to be honest, there's sometimes I've actually danced. There's sometimes I've actually danced. I've been alone. I haven't really shared that with my wife, but I've seen who I am and who God is for me, and it's brought me such a joy that I wanted to dance. And I think, I don't know, I may have it wrong. I, that might be what he's after here, but I love that. Verse 5, there's a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. Look, I don't know what he's talking about there. Uh, every commentator disagreed on that. Um, that. We'll leave that to Solomon. Uh, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Now look, there's a time to say goodbye to some people in your life. Listen, there's a time to say goodbye to some people in your life. There are seasons in your life where for reasons sometimes out of your control, sometimes due to sin, and sometimes due to nothing other than the change in life that God brings in your, your way, there's a time to say goodbye to some relationships and some people. And you know what? They might not return. They might not return. You know, we said goodbye to some friends not too long ago, and we still pray for their return. And I don't know that they will. Some of our closest friends, and there was no sin, there was no hurt. It was just a change in life. God took them to another part of this country. He had something for them that they were being obedient to him in, and they left. And you know what? They're gone. And no matter how many Skype messages you do or emails you do, the relationship is not the same. Sometimes relationships end, and people leave. And sometimes there are relationships that you're in that you should end. There are relationships that many of you are in right now that you should end. There is a season that is upon you that you need to put an end to those things. And for some of you, there are relationships that you're not entering into. And that's sinful. But you need to be aware. Where in your life, in the people in your life, in the relationships you find yourself in, in the places God has put you, are you in a season that you need to embrace people that you're not embracing? Are you in a season that you need to cut away some things that you've been holding on to too tight? There's a time and a season for all of it. There's a time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. There is a season in your life for gathering things and gathering realities. And, and what he's talking about, he's talking about practical realities of life. Houses and clothes and food. There's a season in your life when you're gathering things to your family and to your life. There's a season in your life to purge. I mean, for a lot of us, we skip the purge. Bigger houses because we have more stuff. Instead of purging stuff to stay in the place, we go get more stuff to fill the stuff and get more stuff to fill the stuff and then get storage lockers to put the stuff in that's filled the house because we can't get a bigger one. There's a season in life for purging of stuff and of soul. There's a season in life to gather things to your family, to gather things to your life, to gather the resources needed to be the people that God has called us to be. There's a time to look at what we've got and look around us and go, it's time to cut this stuff loose. Cut it loose. I've invested too much of my soul into this thing or I've had this thing that I can't let go of because I think one day I might actually use it and I haven't used it in five years. We talked about this last week. I won't belabor it. There's a time for purging, a time for gathering, a time for purging even of the soul, for recognizing the things in your heart, the things in your life that you've got to let go of, that you're holding on to too tight. As we've talked about in this series, the illusions that have captured our hearts, captured our minds, it's a time to purge them to say this thing cannot be for me who God has promised to be for me. And I've got to let go of trying to suck out of it the satisfaction and purpose that only God can give me. There's a time for purging and a time for gathering to yourself, a time to tear and a time to sow. Um, you know, oftentimes in Scripture, tearing is used in relation to mourning. There's a time to, to mourn the, the tear of relationship, a time to mourn, mourn the tearing of your hearts in repentance. There's a time to mourn and tear and find sorrow in the realities of life in the season that you find yourself in. And there's a time, time to mend, a time to see reconciliation brought, a time to pursue reconciliation, to pursue making things right, a time to keep silent and a time to speak. This is, I mean, I think I probably should have preached the whole sermon on this one. If we can discern this one well, I mean, if we with wisdom that comes from God and dependence upon God can be a people who are accurately determining when to speak and when to shut up, so much would go well for us. So much would go well for us. There is a time to not speak. 
There is a time in your relationships with some, some people that you love, that you can see, that you have come to in honesty and in, in humility and said you are running off a cliff at 90 miles an hour and it's been like bullets on a rock to them and they don't hear you. There is a time ultimately under heaven to not speak, to not speak. Time in those moments when really prayer is the best thing that you've got. When prayer and, and pleading before God to grab a hold of them because they're not listening. There is a season that you have to discern. I can't tell you when it is. You've got to be humble enough and sensitive enough before God to let him lead you in this. But there's a time to shut up and to not speak. And there are times, and this is harder for a lot of us, there are times to actually speak. There's times to actually care enough to put yourself out there, to actually speak, to love people enough sometimes to take the word of God and with humility and with surrender to try to apply the wisdom of the word of God to someone's life. And that takes something from you. You have to trust God tremendously because you know what? They might not listen. But there are times to speak and there are times to refrain from speaking and it takes discernment. But here's, let me say this. Let me say this. Because we do have some confrontation-friendly people here. When it's time to speak, when it's time to confront, I want you to remember this. That person, like you, was created in the image of God. That person, like you, has evidences of God's grace all throughout their life. Be very careful to not speak your love before you can accurately and honestly point out some aspect of God's grace working in their life to them. Be very slow to speak without first understanding where God is already at work in their life. Because if you can accurately discern where God is at work in their life and then you can speak God's word through the gospel to that person through that window of his grace... The effects, oh man, the effects are so much more powerful. But some of you are so quick to speak, so quick to confront, so quick. I'm just an honest person. I'm just a straight shooter. You're just arrogant. You want to get your point across. You don't want to recognize that God is already at work here before you ever got there. Slow down. Acknowledge that he's at work. See where he's at work and then work with him. And then have the trust and the confidence in him to speak. But notice where he is first. Don't try to beat him there because he's already been there. He's already at work there. You just have to slow down. Discern where he is at work there. And then join him in it. Make sense? That's my OJ sidebar for the morning. Verse 8. A time to love and a time to hate. Man, there's a time to hate. God, God hates. God has anger. Do you understand that? The wrath of God and the anger of God was poured out powerfully. Where? On the cross. Don't miss the cross. It's an unbelievable display of the anger of God towards the sinfulness of man. Towards our unbelievably compulsive ability to be deceived by the illusions of an enemy. God's anger towards our capacity to be deceived about who he was and to believe something untrue about who he was and to give ourselves over to a lie about what we can actually be and have absolutely angers him. And don't miss the fact that he poured that anger out with his love in the context of his love on his son on the cross. And there's a time to join God in his anger. There is a time to join God in his anger towards your own sinfulness, your own ease of deception, your own ease of being caught by illusions. There's a time to join God in his anger towards the pervasive sinfulness of a world that is hurtling off a cliff. There's a time to be angry and there's a time, there's a time to be at peace. There's a time to love. We have to be discerning. We have to be dependent for wisdom to discern the season and the place that he's got us in. There's a time for war. And there's a time for peace. Now, we can all argue if right now is the right time for war. That's neither here nor there. The reality of it is, what we can't argue is that there are never times for war. But there are never times for war. I mean, the best of us 
in the global world live under this illusion that everybody's just born really happy and it's the place they find themselves in as kids that make them mean and angry and violent. It's not true. It's not true. The world does not just need a Coke and a smile and everybody will hug and it will all be okay. That's not true. We don't need to do another version of We Are the World, four, five, and, and six, and everything will be happy. All the nations will embrace and the problems will be gone. That's not the case. We know through the story of Scripture and the reality of sin that all of us are born at odds with God and at odds with one another. We don't need to argue whether now is a time to deal with that the way that we do, but we can't argue that there's never a time for that. So this is Solomon's poem. There are seasons, and you've got to be able to open your eyes and discern the season that you find yourself in. And you need to discern the season you find yourself in so that you can respond with wisdom. Because you can have wisdom to respond accurately and skillfully to the place that God has put you. Now, if there's a season for everything, is there a purpose? And there is a purpose, Solomon is going to say. And this is what he gets to in the end, and this is how we'll move. Look at verse 9. What gain, then, has the worker from all of his toil? This has been his question throughout all of Ecclesiastes. What gain is there? When the scales are all said and done, all that I do and all that I experience, is there anything lasting and significant of this? What gain is there? Listen to him. I have seen, here's the purpose. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. And also he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Here's what he's saying. I'll be brief. God has promised in his business of taking all of those seasons, all of those experiences, all of those laughter, all those moments of laughter, and all those moments of tears. And in his economy of time, making them beautiful. Not when you want, but in its time. God has a time, not only for the season that you walk in, the season that you live in, but he has a time for each of those seasons to be made beautiful. God will make it beautiful in its time. Now here's the problem. Originally, we were created by God in his image and hardwired with what Solomon just called eternity. It's in our hearts. We were hardwired by God in his image with this compulsive desire to see, to know what's the purpose, what's the meaning, how does it all fit together, what's the big picture, where's the satisfaction in this thing. There's a, there's a wiring in us for eternity, for understanding the magnitude of things, but, but we were created in his image, not exactly him. And in that wiring, we do not fully understand the full scope of how he fits it all together. But we were created to want to know, to see, to get the purpose, to get the meaning. But because of sin, we were separated, separated from the one who truly does understand how it all fits. And so here we are wired with this desire to see the big story and how it all goes together and now separated because of sin from the one who does. And we're frustrated because we go through all these things and we experience all these things and we're wired by him to want to know how it all fits and then because of sin, we're separated from him and we can't see it. We can't get it. We don't understand how it all makes sense and then we have a hard time because of that separation to actually believing you're really gonna make that, you're really gonna make that beautiful? There's really a way that that has any sense of beauty because the essence of our sin from the beginning to now is a distrust in who God is and what he has said and he has said it's all got a place and it's all got a time and in my hands and in my economy it's all going to be made beautiful but the essence of our struggle is to say I don't I don't know that you're right there how is holding how is holding my son eight hours after he's born and him dying in my hands going to be made beautiful what beauty is there in that what purpose does that have in any economy that you've got going on here. That's our struggle. Doug Wilson wrote this great little book on the, on the book of Ecclesiastes, and he had this unbelievably beautiful metaphor for what Solomon is struggling with here. And he said that in God's economy, in our understanding of time, we are like people who are laying underneath a loom. You ever seen somebody work on a loom, make a tapestry or a carpet on a loom? He said man, and man's view of time and understanding of the big scope is like a person stuck underneath a loom. All you see are the knots and snarls. 
All you see are the snags and the ties of what the weaver is actually doing. But God's perspective on the whole thing is from above the loom. It's from the heavens. And he sees how all the knots, how all the seasons, how all the instances, how all the circumstances, how everything is masterfully woven together to create this beautiful tapestry, this beautiful scene, how all of those things are brought together in his wisdom and the economy of his time and made beautiful in the scope of this thing. Our struggle is that we're on the underside of the loom. Man is caught too often separated from God and stuck under the loom and all we can see are the knots and the frustrations. And to get the perspective that God has got, we're going to have to get to the place where we can trust him and who he is. It's the place of faith and understanding who he is and what he has said and who he's promised to be and that he does, in fact, sit over this thing. That he does, in fact, have a purpose and a plan for everything under the heavens, for every season and every matter of time, for every circumstance in life. He is the one weaving these things together to create this unbelievable tapestry of redemption that we will not see until the end. And a day will come when we will stand and be made like him and we will look back and we will see all the seasons. All the knots and all the snarls, all the snags, all the joys, and we will see how God beautifully wove those things together. Beautifully put all those things together to create the tapestry of redemption that he had purposed from the very beginning. We were wired to know, but because of sin, we've been cut off from the one who does know. And now it's a matter of faith and trust and hope and leaning into the fact that he does know that begins to make a difference in how we live and how we experience it. And so if we're stuck on the human side of time, underneath the loom and struggling to trust that he's got a, a purpose, that he's got a plan to make it all beautiful, how do we respond to it? I mean, how do we deal with being stuck under there? How do we deal with all these seasons and all these struggles and hoping and faith that he's gonna make sense out of all of it. Look at verse 12. This is what Solomon said. I perceive that there's nothing better for them. I wonder why he said them. I, I, I wonder why he said them. I, I, I wish he had said, I perceive there's nothing better for us. But he said them. To do them, to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat, drink, and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. How do you respond in faith to God's weaving together all the seasons of your life, being stuck under there, not seeing the big picture, you enjoy life. You enjoy life. We talked about this last week. You enjoy life right where God has you, right in the midst of the season that you find yourself in, the place and time where God has put you. You enjoy life. He is on the throne. He is weaving together the tapestry of redemption. He is weaving together the seasons and times of all of our lives to put together the greatest picture of grace, the greatest picture of glory that eternity will ever see. If you're planting, if you're in a season of planting and building and raising and laughing, enjoy it. Enjoy it. There's grace to be had from God in that time. If you're building up, enjoy it. Live with wisdom and humility upon him to find his grace in it. If you're weeping, you're mourning, you're hurting, you're suffering, there's grace to be found in it. There's joy to be found in it, believe it or not. All of it is under heaven. All of it comes from the hand of God. And there's grace to be found in the midst of it. Enjoy it. Live in it. He is over all of it, working all of it together for his glory. How is it possible to do that? Look at what he says, verse 14. We're coming to the close. I'm going to land this plane here in a second. He said, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Under the loom, our view of time, our struggle with how it all fits together, in the midst of it, we need to trust that God is the one weaving it all together and seek to find satisfaction in the place that he has us. Not trying to go around it, not trying to go over it, but finding his grace in the midst of it. What helps us to do that? Knowing that he's in control. I won't make it any harder than it has to be. Knowing that he's in control. 
Listen, you've got to get this. He is the one that is in control. You can let go. You can let go. The struggle that we have to understand what's happening and what's going on ultimately boils down to a struggle of personal control and personal sovereignty, trying to work these snags and snarls of life out to get the picture that we want to see, missing that there is one over top of the whole thing, weaving it all together. You've got to let go. You've got to understand that he is in control. You cannot change your time. You can't change your season. You can't add a day. You couldn't choose when to be born. You can't choose when to die. You can't change it. He is the one who has brought this into our life. Along with that, he is the one that has brought himself into that situation and circumstance. And he is the one from his presence with us that gives us the grace and the joy and the satisfaction in the midst of it. Think about this. This is an exercise I did this morning. Think about this. How little control did you actually have on choosing where you were born? I mean, really, what control did you have in that? I mean, think about the impact that that one thing had on how you lived on the rest of your life. If you don't think it had much impact, think about being born in Afghanistan. Do you think your life would look different? What control did you have over being born where you did? What control did you have being born in the time period in which you did? Just a few hundred years ago in different parts of the world, even in this country, the largest percentage of us probably cut this section here all the way across would have died in childbirth. Some parts of the world right now, that many do. What control did you have being born in the time period in which you did? Experiencing the, 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 the progress of, of technology that you've experienced and benefited from and how it's changed your life. I mean, who chose to live in a time to experience the national and global events that we've chosen and how that shapes our lives? None of us actually did. And when we face the fact that ultimately when it comes to it, we're not the ones in control, that we can actually, we can let go. When we face that fact and come to it, we'll actually be ready to turn and surrender to the one who actually is. When we face the facts that our, our little efforts at control are ultimately futile, we'll be ready to turn to the one who actually is. God has ordained that the seasons of our life, the times of our lives, the circumstances of our lives be used to shape us and draw us to him. See, the seasons in our life that Solomon talked about are not there to get in the way of us living. They don't get in the way of us actually living our life. They are the life that we actually live, and they're to be used by God in his economy of time to shape us, to draw us to him. God is at work in the planting, and God is at work in the pulling up. God will allow the seasons in our lives to, to shake us from the comfort and the illusions that we so easily find ourselves in, we so easily find ourselves deceived by. In fact, in fact, his control is meant to bring us, Solomon said, to our knees in awe. God has set this up. And over heaven, he sits weaving this story together. And we go through the seasons that we go through to bring us to our knees in awe and in worship before him. Listen to this. I put a definition up there for you. This is how we'll close. Paul Tripp said, The fear of the Lord, what Solomon is talking about here, means that I will carry around with me such a deep awareness and awe and reverence for the power, holiness, wisdom, and grace of God that I wouldn't think of doing anything other than living for his glory. Fearing the Lord means that this worshipful, wonderful awe is the single unchallenged motivator of everything that I think, desire, say, and do. The fear of the Lord, I said earlier, more than any other fear, is the one that's meant to set the agenda for how we live, for the reactions that we have to the seasons of life that we find ourselves in, the reactions that we have to the matters of life that we go through. This is what God was doing. He is bringing us to himself. The seasons of life are not just things we endure or experience, but they are divinely ordained tools to turn our hearts towards him to turn our hearts towards the one who sees the bigger picture, the one who is at work weaving them all together 
They're not just there hoops that we jump through. They're not just things that we get through and check off on our list. I've done it, I've made it, I've gone through. They are tools in the hands of an unbelievably powerful and creative redeemer that are meant to turn us towards him. That's what the seasons of life are here for. And here's something I love. If all of this is under heaven, listen, if all this is under heaven, and if all of this is from the hand of God who is weaving all this together, that means that Jesus, Jesus is the Lord over all of this time. And we do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with all of the seasons of life that we go through. We don't have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with all the different seasons and struggles that we experience, but just as us, he went through them all, but unlike us, he did not respond to them in sin. Unlike us, our great high priest responded to the seasons of life with wisdom. He lived the seasons of life that we live with wisdom and dependence upon God in the presence of God and dependence upon God for the glory of God. We don't have a great high priest in the heavens who cannot sympathize. If anybody knew the right time and the right season, it was Jesus. The scriptures say in the fullness of time, he left his throne in the presence of God and came and took on the form of man, the form of a servant, living the life that we were created to live just at the right time. He lived his life, and all throughout his time here on earth, Jesus would say, you'll find him throughout the gospel, saying the time hasn't come. The time has not come. People wanting him to be king, people wanting him to heal, people wanting him to do different things, and he'd say, I can't, the time hasn't come. And just at the right time, according to the scriptures, Jesus knew, knew when to lay his life down. And according to the scriptures, he gave himself up for us and died on that cross. And according to the scriptures, at just the right time, three days later, he rose from the grave. Jesus was always wise about the seasons of life that he was in and how to respond to them appropriately. He knew when to heal and he knew when not to heal. He knew when to tear down. Think about the temple, going into the temple, whipping it, tearing the tables apart. He knew when to tear down and when to build up. Peter, upon this rock and the confession of my supremacy and deity, I'm going to build my church now. He knew when to heal. He knew when not to heal. He knew when to embrace, and he would look at the tax collectors and the prostitutes, and he would embrace them as they would understand who he was, and he knew when not to embrace as he would look at the scribes and the Pharisees and say, you brood of vipers, you brood of vipers, thinking that you can do all of these things and read all of these things, missing the fact that they all point to me. He knew when not to embrace. He knew when to embrace. He knew when to heal. He knew when to build. He knew when to tear down. And we do not have a God or a great high priest in heaven who cannot sympathize with us, but who we can turn to in humility and dependence for wisdom upon how to respond to the place that we find ourselves in. And that's what the seasons of life are meant to do. They're meant to call us to him in humility and surrender, to come to him for wisdom, to say, how, where am I? How do I respond? And where is the grace Where is the joy? Where is the satisfaction to be found in the place that you have put me right here and right now? We'll never be able to completely understand. We'll never be able to completely understand with our finite human minds what God's doing. We'll we'll get confused by the season sometimes. We'll misunderstand and we'll get frustrated and we'll wonder how could this, and how could this actually be good? How in the world can this be made beautiful? Knowing that God is in control, knowing that Jesus has done for us what we could never do, that he has responded to this circumstance in the way that we were created to respond, knowing all of those things won't make us understand life. But knowing that, that he is in control and that Jesus, Jesus has gone before us in this process does help us to experience the life that we've been created to live with wisdom and grace. It's because we don't get life that we need to understand that. It's because we'll never understand life that we need to understand that God is in control. That Jesus is the one who will guide us with wisdom through the life that we live. Joy, joy is not found in controlling everything. It's not found in controlling at all. That's not where joy is found. Joy and satisfaction is found in the seasons of life of knowing the one who is controlling who is in control, who is weaving it all together, who is making everything beautiful in its time. There will be a day, there will be a day when we'll get to see, we'll get to see as he sees, and we'll see how it all gets put together. We'll see the tapestry that he's been working for all of eternity. 
And at that day, we'll see how all the knots and tears in our life he used, he made beautiful, he redeemed, and he unbelievably wove together for his glory. Until then, don't try to outrun the season of life. Don't try to run around them. Don't try to jump over them. Run through them. Go through them. Live them. Don't get stuck in the rearview mirror. Don't get stuck looking so far ahead. Live in the season of life that God has put you in. Discern what it is. And in humility, go to him for wisdom. Go to him for the grace and satisfaction to be found in it. Live with an urgency of eternity. Live knowing that one day you will stand before him and you will give an account for how you responded to the seasons of life that you live in. Live knowing that one day you will look to him and he will look to the way that you've lived and responded. Deal with how you will fare on that day. Deal with how you will answer on that day. Deal with the reality that because of Jesus for eternity, you get God. You get God. You don't just get off the hook and forgiven. You get him for all of eternity. And how does that shape the way that you live here and now? Live with an urgency about yourself. And then make good use of your time. Make good use of your time. Don't waste it. Don't waste it. In God's economy, time is one of the most precious gifts that we're given. We don't know the number of breaths that we have. There's nothing that we can do to add to the number of them that we will experience. We can, though, change the way that we respond to the ones that we have. We can change the way that we respond to the places and the seasons that he's put us in. So at just the right time, Jesus will come, and time, time, seasons, there'll be no more. At just the right time. We don't know when it is. People have written books about it, but they gotta be honest, they don't know. At just the right time, Jesus will come. And when he comes, time will be no more. And in light of that, let's just join Moses and asking God to help us number our days. To number our days and live with wisdom in the days that he's given us. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for Ecclesiastes. It has been hard. Lord, I, honestly, I get why lots of people don't preach Ecclesiastes. Um, it's been hard. Lord, but we pray that hard words will make soft hearts. That hard words will, will make soft hearts that our hearts will be shaped, Lord. We are after losing the illusions that we live under, losing the illusions that rob joy and satisfaction from you, losing the illusions that we have any righteousness or goodness in ourselves to commend ourselves to you. And we're, we're after trying to understand all the ways that we do that so that we can turn to you and, and hope in what truly can never disappoint and what can never deceive. So God, help us to number our days. Help us to have wisdom to discern the seasons that we're in. Help us to find joy in the fact that you are the one who is working them all together and that because you're the one in control working them all together, there's joy and there's grace to be found in all the seasons that we experience. Help us to not try to run around them and miss them, but help us to be hunters of your grace in them. Help us to hunt for you in the season that we're in. Help us to not be satisfied until we see you in our season and, and receive from you a joy, receive from you a satisfaction receive from you a contentedness that allows us to live right here and right now. Lord, as we do that, Lord, help us to be a people that reflect your glory, that reflect the satisfaction in you for us. Let that be what people see in us. Lord, we're not after a name being made for this church. We're after a name being made for you because of your gospel through your people. Lord, help us to live wisely. Help us to come to you with humility for wisdom. Lord, and help us to have an expectancy about your promise to give to those who come to you. Lord, we ask this, that you be glorified and we would receive great joy, great joy. Amen. As is, a, we have a custom here, if you're new, um, after